This week on Writers Inc. People are so afraid of failure. Like if we just erased everything I said for 60 seconds, people are afraid of failure. That's the that's the answer. And I tell people I take a hundred shots and hit two. But you're so afraid you won't take one. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Hey, JD, it's good to see you again, man. Hey, how are you doing? Back from California, right? Barely. Yeah, I got in. <laughs> I got in la late last night. Uh, I'm still sort of a bit wobbly, uh, not quite uh, locked into the time zone yet. But the Authors on a Train trip was an amazing experience, so uh, I can't complain. Yeah, I bet. Did, now, did you switch time zones or did you try to stick with the, the home time while you were, well, you were there? Well, I, I tried. Uh, I went to, when I got home last night, I went to bed uh, sort of my, my, my local time, but I got up on California time. So I'm, I'm running like three hours behind today. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's tough to do that, it's, especially when you go overseas and there's like a you know a 10 hour difference or something crazy. Um, and, you know, I, I tend to go for only like a couple of days, too. Right. So, like, I'm, I'm, I'm in these places just long enough to get used to the local mm -hmm. time and then got to head back home again. But that, that looked like a lot of fun, like a really good, cool event. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was eight days. So, you know, we took the train from L.A. up to San Francisco and then we spent a good bit of time in the Bay Area. So I was fully adjusted when I was there. But, you know, coming back, like there's nothing you can do, but you just got to suck it up and deal. I think a lot of people don't realize just how comfortable the trains are. You know, like they've got power outlets at every little spot. Hardly, <laughs> hardly anybody takes them. So they're, you know, you can get a whole car to yourself sometimes. And yeah. I love taking the train. I go, I take it into New York quite a bit from here and it, it's fun. Yeah. I don't and know if you've ever done the coastal starlight, but it's the one that goes from LA to San Francisco and it, it goes right along the coast for, for hundreds of miles. It's gorgeous. Oh, nice. I might have to check that out. Yeah. It's a good writer's retreat uh, by yeah. yourself, you know? <laughs> So what's up with you, man? I know you get some construction uh, going on there today. Yeah. So to give you fair warning, I, I don't have a door on my office right now. Um, somebody just finished priming and and uh, the ceiling and the walls in here. So I might zone out just from the paint fumes at some point. Um, we've got guys uh, putting flooring in. We've got other electricians running around. My contractor is upstairs putting in crown molding. And you know, so there's tons of, there you go, yeah. <laughs> pounding going on it. I put a note up on my, where my door used to be telling people we're doing this right now, but there's a pretty good chance somebody's going to come running in here to, to ask me a question at some point. <laughs> well, it's a construction, a live construction site. Well, so we're just going to roll with it. That's all you can do. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. So we're here today to talk about uh, Mr. Chris Brogan. Uh, have, have, have you heard of Chris or known of Chris prior to uh, the interview? No, I haven't. So I, I went out there and hit hit up Google. Um, you know, my, my source for all information. Um, and and like he's he's in the nonfiction world, which I try yes. to avoid like the plague. Like to me, writing nonfiction is is like work. You know, it's it's because I, I started off in this business years back writing um interviews. You know, for newspapers and magazines and things like that. And it and it felt like a job. And like you know, writing fiction. I mean, you're literally just making stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> to me, it's a it's a lot more fun. But you know, more power to him. And he, he's got some really good books out there. 
Yeah, Chris is an interesting guy. Uh, Zach introduced me to him. I've known Chris for a few years, and he, he's even dabbling with a fiction project with us, which is kind of uh, working working along in the background. So uh, I really enjoyed talking to him uh, because I've talked to him before, and so we didn't have that icebreaker uh, time that we had. But uh, he's a really wise guy. He's been in the internet marketing world for a long time, and I think uh, especially if you're writing nonfiction of any kind, I think he's, a, he's someone that you can really look to for uh, sort of paving the path. Well, if I'm going to pick up a nonfiction book, it tends to be stuff like what he's putting together, you know, like how to handle social media and, and things like that, because it changes so fast. Um, and just the, the fact that he's taking the time to, to organize it and kind of you know, point anybody in, a, in the right direction is, is just so helpful because um, you can blink your eye and it's totally different the next day. And you, know, you need somebody to help you interpret all that. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So why don't we get into the interview? And then uh, when we come back, we'll talk about some of the important takeaways and great advice that Chris gave us. Okay, Chris Brogan. Here we go. Chris Brogan, how are you? Best day of my life. <laughs> I want to spend our entire time talking about one thing. Are you cool with that? Let's do it. All right. I want to know all about Google Plus for Business. <laughs> <gasps> How do you know? That is my favorite topic. What I would have done if they gave me the division. <laughs> oh man. Sorry. I had to do that to you. You know that, right? I love it. It's all out of love. <laughs> so I did want to, I did kind of, I don't want to like make you go back and tell us about your childhood and all the rotten things your parents did to you and all that kind of stuff. So I figured we could start in a slightly different place if you're cool with that. Yeah, whatever you want. I'm here for you. <laughs> All right. So here's my thoughts. Uh, I think I have the math right. Is next year the 10th anniversary of Trust Agents? So it came out in 2009. So this year is officially it, but we will publish it again in 2020. So ah, we're either going to call it 10th anniversary edition or we could call it Trust Agents 2020. I'm starting to rethink and wanting it to be Trust Agents 2020. Interesting. So t tell me a little bit more about, uh, it has to be more than just a 10th year anniversary that you're deciding to do this, right? There's got to be something that you want to change or update or something that's different, I would think. Well, if I'm talking to uh, Wiley, uh, it's because this is such a great book and, <laughs> uh, you know, clearly it needs to see more life. If I'm talking to anyone who wants to hear the truth, um, you know, it was a very successful book. It won the New York Times bestseller list, um, Wall Street Journal, Inc. Magazine, uh, one of their best of that year. Um, who am I forgetting? 800 CEO read. I mean, we won a ton. Oh, USA Today. We won all kinds of awards for our very first book. Never since have I won a single award for any of my books. Um, so I feel like, you know, this book is still pretty good. And then as I go through it, there's parts of it where it's just so dated. Like it talks about just software that doesn't exist anymore. And that's because it should never, I should never mention in the first place. <laughs> um, so what I really want to do is the best parts of this book are really worth seeing the light of Dave again. And so I want to release this 2020 book to get speaking gigs and consulting gigs. That's the money part. Um, but also because I, I really still feel the same is true 10 plus years later. I feel like, everything we said in that book was just like, you know, you, you've really got to use some of these new digital tools to build better relationships and tell your story in a much more important way. I think that that's all still so valid. And what happens is people, especially in the business writing world go, this book's 10 years old. There's nothing useful in this, you know, absolutely discounting, 
great, amazing books, How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, you know, uh, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits. Bible's pretty damn old. We still read that thing, <laughs> you know, so I feel like, you know, there's more than 10 years in the Bible. We could we could do this sort of thing. Why, why do you think that book, you, you mentioned the awards and the recognition you got. Why that, why that book um, um, and compared to the other stuff you've written? Gosh, you know, part of me feels like it's just a total racket. And they just all looked around the books. They're like, well, this one seems nice. I don't know. I, you know, I really feel that part, part way. The other thing is we wrote a book about trust right as the financial market collapsed. And I think a lot of people bought it. You know, it's called the best selling list. It's not called the best book you ever read list. So a lot of people bought it, probably got at home and were like, this is nothing like the Transformers movie. <laughs> um, and they were very sad, but they bought it. So F them, thanks for the award. So um, the, you know, I think that's partly it. I think the other part is that um, all my books, everything I've ever written one way or another, including my least successful professional book, um, all said really the same thing. You could be long haired and you could be weird and you could do all kinds of crazy ass things. And you should, like you should be really the real you. And that book was the first time we said that in a way that a bunch of pro business professionals could nod along a little bit. And I think that what happened was the weirdos in all these various companies were like, this book explains me. And there's nothing you ever want in life more than a book that explains you because then people buy it like crazy. And I guess it just explained enough people. Well, and, and that hit the list. I mean, this is this predates Kindle Gold Rush. This predates any type of gamification to get on those lists. So I, I and and the fact that it was, uh, you know, a Wiley book and Wiley has a, a pretty big roster. I think it's quite an accomplishment that your book had that kind of recognition and resonated that way with so many people. Yeah, and I, I want to thank you for circling back to that, because I do want to give them lots of credit. I mean, we tried to wreck this book as many ways as we could. Um, I, I had, uh, the first deal I had for this was through a different part of Wiley. And then Wiley said, no, 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 this needs to come over to our business group. This, I don't know how you got this deal with these people, but that's a stupid deal. Go with these guys. And, uh, Matt Holt and Shannon Vargo were my team back then. And, and also my buddy, Peter. And I, I can tell you that, you know, the team really cared about this book and, you know, cared about us. And of course, once we started really getting successful, then they really cared about us. But, um, it's not that way in book publishing a lot anymore. And, you know, uh, Matt and Shannon and everybody are still in there, Peter and some others. They're all still in Wiley. And uh, there are some nice people you meet at publishing companies. But, I, you know, I hate to be one of the, yet another old man going, oh, back in the day. Um, but like that book had some love behind it from Wiley. Now, uh, that is to say that like when we begged to get, a you know, a tiny little corner in Hudson News, you know, we didn't realize what an investment that could be. Um, and we did it. There were no real ways to game it that we were made aware of. I mean, everyone said that you can game the New York Times list, but um, while I technically believe it, I just haven't figured it out. Like I'm not smart <laughs> enough to, and I haven't invested in it. So um, maybe that's why all the other books didn't hit it. You know, maybe we just weren't, we're, we're too dumb and just won it the first time. <laughs> I think, you know, one other thing I want to say about that, and then I'll, I'll leave it off is that I just feel like the, earnestness of the authors and, and our, our massive drive to do a lot of promotion. I mean, I was a professional keynote speaker. Mm -hmm. Julian was looking to do even more paid speaking. So the fact that we were bringing this to multiple corporations and getting it out into some people's faces did not hurt Wiley. And it definitely ha had them get that, you know, people who write business books forget that they're supposed to be book marketers. 
And we were like, we are book marketers. We didn't know anything, but we were, we were going to do it. Well, you certainly have uh, some of the same taste in music that I do. And I know that you're influenced by, by a lot of the same stuff. So I, I'd really be curious to know what, over the years, what sort of lessons or takeaways have you gotten from like looking to the side and seeing what's happening in the, or happened in the music industry? Interesting you say that. So uh, one of the highlight moments of my life, and there's so many, I've lived such an amazingly blessed life. A uh, helicopter could crash through this wall and kill me and I'd be, I'd be okay. Um, Henry Rollins, I got a chance to meet him. Uh, you know, Black Flag and all kinds of the Rollins band and all that. And my buddy, uh, Brian Clark had an event uh, and he was another speaker there. And this kid, Sean, knew, uh, Sean is one of Brian's business partners, knew that I was such a Rollins fan. He goes, hey, do you want to go meet Henry? I was like, shut up. Like, <laughs> how many people do I got to blow to get back there? Let's go. <laughs> so I was looking to try to figure out how to be gay. Let's go. So I go back there and meet him. Um, my one thing I will say is that, you know, sometimes when you meet your idols, uh, especially one with a storied background like his, it was a little bit like push play. Like he had a lot of stories he wanted to tell me that I'm sure he has said a million times. <laughs> and, and, and you know, if Henry ever listens to your show, which he probably will never will. Um, if Henry ever listens to this episode, sorry, Henry, you can fight me on this, but it was totally true. You just push play. He just said all his stories, but he said a few things in there that really connected with me. Meanwhile, I was trying to like tell him how in love I am with him and how I had all his prose books and all this, you know, and how like everything, everything but the tattoo. Uh, he said, you know, the thing that I'm most turned on by in my musical background was back when we weren't anybody. And when it was DIY, and we had to do a lot of photocopies and a lot of paste. And we had to play a lot of really bad shows to get to better shows. And we really worked. And he goes, the difference between us and all the other bands doing what we're doing, our music wasn't better than anybody's music. He goes, our music was better than some people, but not a lot of people were better than us. He said, but we worked. We worked really hard. And we went out, we pushed our music. I made sure people loved us. And I took that. And I would say that, you know, all the metal bands that I grew up loving, and then I got into hip hop, late 90s hip hop, early 2000 hip hop. Um, it was all people with a strong work ethic. I love working guy bands. So for a guy like you with super long hair, and that always looks like we don't fit in anywhere. We both look like Jesus. Uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like we have that work ethic and there this also separates people who are authors who don't go anywhere and authors who get somewhere is we're going to put in the work well it's a great it's a great comment and i'm so curious to follow up a little bit on this idea of work because one of the most famous brogan memes i could find out there uh was to truly know what works you have to learn what doesn't work first so i'm curious as to what that what does that mean to you? What does that feel like to you about learning what doesn't work first? So, you know, I am notorious for ripping off other people's quotes and making them sound like mine. <laughs> um, so Henry Ford said uh, uh, something about, you know, or was that, was it Ford? It wasn't Ford. It was the light bulb guy. Um, oh, Edison. Edison. <laughs> <laughs> I had nothing. I was sitting here utterly blank. I'm like, I started thinking of other inventors of like Nikolai Tesla. No. <laughs> Edison said, if we edit that, I'll sound so much smarter. <laughs> uh, Edison said, uh, you know, I didn't learn how to make a light bulb. I learned a thousand ways not to make a light bulb or something like that. And that's the same thing. I tell people all the time, people are so afraid of failure. Like if we just erased everything I said for 60 seconds, people are afraid of failure. 
That's the, that's the answer. And I tell people, I take a hundred shots and hit two, but you're so afraid you won't take one. So I am already two shots better than you in this game. And, and to me, I have almost, so I'm not an airline pilot. So if I miss the runway 98 times, that's bad. That's a really low, bad number, right? Um, if I'm a surgeon and 98 out of hundred of my people die on the table, I am in trouble, but I could take a hundred shots at anything I do. Cause it's so insignificant that every time I win, people are like, wow, you won utterly easily forgetting all the stuff I failed at. That's the other thing. We are so, so thinking that the light is glaring down on us and we can't even see because we think that's the people around us. They're going to notice our failures. You are such a loser. No one's looking at you. <laughs> no one cares what you're doing from day to Fail. day. <laughs> no one's watching, you know, dance like no one's watching because they aren't. <laughs> No, that's the truth. The only people who are watching are lame people and they're just trying to compare you to the thing they already do well. But you know what? Everyone already does well stuff they've already done. If you're doing well at something, it means you've done it before. If you try new stuff, you're going to fail. Well, new stuff. Uh, I love your Sunday morning emails. And I don't know, a, a few weeks, a month or so ago, you kind of changed the tone a little bit on that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just a little uh, change. But <laughs> you know, to me, it feels significant to some people that are like, I don't really get what you're and like it seems the same to me, um, which is good. You know, when you see that packaging, one of the things you see all the time in food marketing is same great taste, really same, just the same thing, just slightly different blue on the label. You know, we don't want to weird you out because, you know, <laughs> Coke ruined it in the eighties. They made new Coke and made everybody mad. So um, what I changed in my business newsletter is I decided to create more of a intentional package around everything I was going to send out. So as I write my newsletter now, I don't just sit down and write a whimsical thought. I think, how does this deliver? How does this deliver? What do I need to put in there? What kinds of links can I give people as well as my ideas? Because I was very anti-link um, to, to give them even more resources to work from and all that. And I, I try to make sure that it all really fits the theme. And that'll be way more true rolling past 2020 and everywhere else. It's just that um, it is going to be a lot more deliberate. And I have a, a bizarre side connection to this, which is that uh, my favorite comedians are the ones it turns out. I'm a very improv-y guy because I have no memory, but structured comedians are some of my favorites. So Mike Birbiglia is my absolute favorite comic right now. I, I like John Mulaney. I like ones who have like story arcs and stuff in their writing. Mike Birbiglia's Thank God for Jokes is one of my favorite uh, pieces of content in the world to show people how to really think and weave a nice story that even allows for serendipity. Um, and by contrast, I watched just part of a Netflix show last night with this guy called Jeff Garland, who's been a professional comedian for 30 plus years. Um, and he was saying, I'm used to being a very improv-y kind of guy. I'm used to just showing up with nothing to do. I've got this beginning, middle and end of this story and it feels really different to me. It feels really restrictive to me. I'm not feeling it. Well, that's me. I'm Jeff Garland. And all I was thinking was, and I didn't like his show and I turned it off, by the way. Um, I didn't feel like it was very structured. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this is like, this is me getting the proof point why I need a much more solid, slightly serendipitous dictation method of, of making sure that I package things because people want you to play the hits. The Black Album for Metallica was awesome. Justice was, a lot of people liked it. Right in between was the first time I saw Metallica and they were just jamming and it was so boring. I love Metallica. <laughs> I would tell them to their face if I could. I was at that old show at the old Gillette Stadium before the new one. And 
it was jamming and it just wasn't fun for anybody. And I now think of myself as having been in that mode and I haven't even published a black album yet. So I'm ready to make much more structured and yet vibrant music so that people ask me to play the hits for decades to come. Mm. Well, you've certainly put your flag in the ground around video. Uh, why, why should authors in this day and age care about video? This is one of the most depressing stats in the world. The U.S. Department of Labor and Statistics says that on average, human Americans, not, I can't speak to other races and, and <laughs> like, you know, horses and stuff. Human Americans read on average 19 minutes a day. 19 minutes a day, including emails, text messages. Oh, including Facebook text posts, messages. Everything. Think about how these devices eat that much time. You know who reads books? Nobody. Book authors read books. That's who reads books. And, and fools. Except when you have an amazing book and when you have a great business book and then everyone's telling you, read this book. And you, uh, you start getting like, what, did someone pay everyone to say this? Because they're all telling me the same book. Um, and it works in every genre and it works, you know, word of mouth in books is still the most magical thing in the world. That said, YouTube is the number two search engine in the world. People consume now very close to 2 billion hours of content every day, every day. When you and I uh, start, set up to record this, I was watching YouTube, which made me forget to dial in at the exact right <laughs> moment. I was watching the year end wrap up of hot ones, uh, Sean Evans, complex media. Um, it is so vital and uh, book authors, business authors, anybody can use YouTube in interesting ways to augment their content. Um, but what it also does really, really, really well is it gives the sort of voice behind the book. And I think that that is more important than it ever was in the history of books because people are going to want to read something you've written after they feel that charismatic connection. They go, Oh, I like Jay, such a guy. I'm going to check out these books or, you know, Oh, did you know I read all these thrillers and stuff? It's going to really blow their minds. So I think that, you know, video much more so, but also audio, but video more than ever before is so vital. It's so easy. Any stupid smartphone can record it. You know, you don't have to be all that clever to do it. Um, and you can buy a cheap ass web camera. Like I have, you know, set up and not playing right now that can do this as well it's not expensive anymore. And all it requires is that you practice and practice communicating like a edited human being so that you don't say, um, 7,000 times basically, and try not to look around too much. Don't pick your nose as much on camera. And then you're, you're like halfway there. You're living on a prayer right then. <laughs> oh my. Well done, sir. Uh, so you. how's audio compare? How's uh, podcasting audiobooks? How's that ranking as far as you're concerned when it comes to uh, up against video? Massive. Um, so, so video is so super vital and it is because that's how more people are consuming more stuff. There's, um, over, there's over a hundred million hours of set top viewing every single day now from YouTube, a hundred million hours of people displacing cable or other sources for set top viewing only for YouTube. This doesn't count the weird channels that you shouldn't think about. Um, <laughs> just YouTube alone. So audio though, um, the Edison Research Infinite Dial Report is worth checking out. My buddy Tom Webster has something to do with that. And the Infinite Dial Report says many more people are consuming podcasts than ever, ever before. Now in 20, 2009 or so when I wrote my book, the joke was that the, uh, books are the new band. You know, everyone had a book just like everyone had a band when I was in high school. I, I had like three really bad garage bands. 
um, podcast is the new book. Everyone has a podcast. Everyone has a podcast. And you can do two things with that. You can go one, oh, I'm totally daunted. I'm not going to bother. How am I ever going to beat somebody like Joe Rogan? Well, you should never try to beat Joe Rogan. I don't know. I think only stoners um, really con contribute to that <laughs> number because it's a two plus hour video. Right. Like, you know, a two plus hour podcast. If you're a stoner, this is two plus hours of justified sitting perfectly still. Makes perfect sense to me. Everyone else's podcast is between 20 and 40 minutes or so. Uh, there's a few outliers that are doing really well. But podcasting uh, is for the morning commute. It is for going to the gym. It is for all the times you're in between a decent audio book or you're only going to stick to your three a month from Audible or whatever. Um, podcasting is an incredible way to expand your audience to people who aren't going to read your text. And so I think and believe, and my whole soul is in this, I think that if you are only making printed text books, uh, and printed can go to digital as well, but if you're making only textual intercourse, then you're not having nearly as much idea sex as you could possibly have, and you need to think about audio and video. Wow. Uh, would, it go, would it make sense also to say that then that printed book is also uh, a lead generator. It's, it's something to uh, build a structure business around or speaking engagements as opposed to relying on the royalties, uh, all of themselves. Um, so I am again, a New York times bestselling author. Uh, since that book came out 10 plus years ago, the total amount of money that the royalties of that book, and I split it with Julian Smith, but the total amount of money that the royalties of that book have amounted to over 10 years is like 35, 40,000 bucks. The amount of money I made through speaking and consulting because of that book are past a couple million or more. So it's wow. up to you. I mean, you could have 40,000 bucks or a couple million. Um, the royalties are not how anybody makes money in a book anymore, just like albums aren't how uh, bands make any money. Bands make money from merch and they make money from live touring. That's why there's a bunch of bands like with walkers, you know, pulling out. A Don't get me started on the Motley Crue <laughs> tour, please. It's where the money is. So. <laughs> No, I don't think I don't think you can sit around hoping for your digital royalties one way or another. I think you've got to hustle and not in that Gary Vaynerchuk way. You just got to do the job. And what books do really well that podcast videos and all these other things don't, and especially speeches, you know, a book's 20 bucks, a speech is 20,000 for me. Um, what, a, what a speech does is it gives you a moment in time where you feel like, oh, that Chris is funny and those are pretty good points. I'm going to try to take them away. One bad voice message. And they have totally forgotten everything I said. What a book is, is an object permanence lesson. You can go to page 17 right. as many times as you want. And that chapter could be dog-eared and the folds over and, you know, crumbs because you've read it so many times. That's what a book is. And, and there's still a value in that. But, but very few people still feel the magic in a book as much as they feel the magic in what they can make a book do for their lives. Makes me a little sad because I'm one of those weirdos who still reads about three to four self-help and business books a week. So, and I, I reading with my eyes, not with my ears. So uh, I'm right. definitely an outlier. I know that like, it's makes me sad, but I, 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 the stats don't lie, you know? You know, I, I don't even commute anywhere. So it's harder for me to consume an audiobook than it ever was. So I am also a person who consumes paper books, but how many people do we really know that don't commute anywhere? How many people that we, do we really know that actually do sit still and pick a book over the Irishman on Netflix? <laughs> it's just a tough choice because I, I'm one of those people that love that movie, but 
that's a whole nother conversation. I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you. We can totally talk about the fact that everyone came out of that movie feeling like they had run a marathon and that they really thought you could squeeze 40 minutes out of it somewhere, but we can't tell you where. <laughs> and it's the same people who binge, you know, an entire season of hour long episodes. It doesn't make sense, but I know I loved it. Love the movie. Uh, let me, let me kind of pull this together to a close with sort of a, a general question I like to ask all of our guests and you can feel free to answer this however you want, uh, in whatever ways you want, but I'm curious what your approach to the business of writing is. How, how do you think about, uh, writing as a business? Uh, I love the question. There are I don't write a book if I don't think there's a business behind it. I don't write a book if I don't think there's, you know, someone out there's going to hire me for it. So I, again, as a professional speaker, as one of my major bread winning devices, I want that book to be in a Hudson News or somewhere. And I want some important person to grab that book and go, oh my gosh, we need this guy to come speak on this. And that's what the title and the subtitle and the little back flap has to do. And uh, I'm really toying with a funny working title for my next book, which will probably not really be that book. But right now it's um, uh, Viking on a rainbow space shark. <laughs> not even joking. That's what I just, I put that at the page because I'm so mad at my really businessy sounding titles. I just said this, what if this book were called Viking on a rainbow space shark? <laughs> if it gets to print like this, Jay, it's, it's going to change my life. Um, so the book has to be a business book that is going to have business behind it. Um, it's not, I never think is this book a Ted talk. And I think here, this is important. So take out your yellow highlighter for your ears right now. It's not, Ted talks aren't business books, right? A business book is something that makes someone go, Oh my gosh, I need my engineers to know about this. I need my sales staff to know about this. I need my leadership team to really get around this idea. There are so few exceptions to that. Brene Brown immediately rushes to mind. Renee had a great TED talk, made it into a book. Start with why. Great idea, turn it into a book. There are like six of those and there are 8 million really important business books that never would make sense on a stage on TED. Um, TED is kind of the uh, people who know how to pronounce foie gras. You know, that's TED. <laughs> now, what you're looking for is people who eat either a grilled cheese sandwich or a ham and cheese sandwich. Um, and when they hear vegan, they snicker even if they were, you know, rather eat the plants. Um, and this world is too small for way too many TED Talk books. And I think that what we need are, we need a lot more meat and potatoes type books out there. And they, if you're a vegan, you can call them asparagus and potato books or side by me. All right, so Chris Brogan, uh, really great, interesting guy. He talked a lot about uh, work ethic and how important that is. Well, how, how, what's, what's your perspective on work ethic? Um, I'm probably a bad example because I'm a major workaholic. I, I mean, I, I, I get up first thing in the morning. I've got zero problem keeping my butt in my, my chair all day long. I, I think we talked about this before, but I, I've got a form of autism called Asperger's. Um, it tends to make me very project focused. Um, and, and I don't get distracted very easily. So a lot of people actually, you know, like it, it's, it's to the point where it's a fault. You know, I, I, I work too hard. Um, but yeah, he's, he's spot on on a lot of things. I mean, one of the things that he threw out there that I, I really did appreciate was, you know, the, when he said you, you basically have to try, yeah. you know, certain things, you know, if, if you don't like, it, it's better to try and fail a hundred times than it is to not try at all. 
Um, and, and I know so many different people where they're like, you know, oh, I should do this. I should do that. But they never actually give it a shot. Um, you know, and, and that translates to virtually every aspect of life. But, you know, like in the author's world, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like if you need to get a blurb for your book, you know, you were just at Thriller Fest. You know, there's tons of big name authors just running around. You can run into Lee Child in the elevator. You know, all these people are, are right there. Uh, but you only get a minute or two. You're not even really a couple seconds to, to try and flag one of them down. And, you know, you can either stare at them from across the, the hallway and then 10 seconds later go, crap, I should have probably said something. Or you can just make that effort to get up there and say something. And, you know, they might say no, but at, at least they shot you down. At least you made the effort and you tried. And I, I look back at my own career at, you know, some of the things that have happened. You know, like Stephen King gave me his blessing to use some of his characters in Forsaken. That wouldn't have happened if I didn't reach out. You know, if I didn't try, I mean, there was a, you know, I, I didn't expect him to say yes, um, but I, I knew I had to try, um, you know, James Patterson, same thing. I mean, I, I mailed him a copy of Fourth Monkey to try and get a blurb from him um, that turned into, a, you know, us working on some books together. Uh, you just you'd never know. But, you know, if you play that what if game and you just sit in a chair and what if I did that? What if I did this and you, you don't actually do it um, before you know it, you're in a rocking chair, you know, <laughs> looking at looking out at your grandkids playing that same what if game. Yeah, it's it's exactly you. You mentioned Thriller Fest. Uh, I approached you at Thriller Fest, and we wouldn't have this podcast if that hadn't happened. And I I didn't know how you were going to respond, or and and I know how busy of a guy you are, and all the projects you're in. But I was like, the worst he's going to say is not interested. So you know, what have you got to lose? Yeah, well, you know, the restraining order didn't go through, so <laughs> I'm, I'm kind kind of stuck. Um, <laughs> And it, it was funny that he mentioned some of the bands too. I mean, I don't know, this is a little bit off topic, but like Henry Rollins, I met him years ago and, and he really is like, he will just talk your ear off. But <laughs> just, just like he said, it really does sound like he's got a list and he just checks off this story and that story because he knows which ones resonate with the, the fans. Um, and some of the bands, like I saw Metallica way back, like when, um, I forget what album it was, but one was on it. Um, and I saw him in just a tiny little auditorium, um, and Queensryche actually opened for them. I remember that um, tour. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, this place was like, it maybe held 500 people. It was so small. Um, you know, and you look back on it and my wife and I just went and saw journey not too long ago. And we purposely got seats that were pretty far back because we wanted the band to be a little bit blurry, you know, because, <laughs> because it's, it's not really journey anymore, but right. you know, it, it sounds a lot like journey. So it's nice to see them from like, you know, the halfway point instead of that first row. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so true. One of the things that Chris talked about that uh, I, I won't say alar alarming is too strong of a word, but he talked about how Americans are just reading. They're not reading a lot. You know, like I think he quoted it something like 19 minutes a day is sort of the average time spent reading. And that includes text messages. Uh, yeah, that, that was a bit I know it, it took me back a little bit. Had you realized um, that those kind of studies were out there and they were sort of that dire for for authors? <laughs> Well, I, I think there's actually an app on the iPhone now that will track how much time you're spending on your, your various, you know, your screen. So Facebook and Twitter and all those different things. And I, I don't have it turned on. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, we're just as a people in general, we're just getting inundated with with information. It just comes at us from all these different places. Um, and I, I, I do think he I mean, he's definitely right. I mean, it's, it's a problem, I think, right now. But I think a lot of people are actually kind of heading back in the other direction, because when you've got Facebook screaming at you, you've got Twitter screaming at you, you've got your television on with a news feed that's got a ticker and a talking head and a commercial plane and all these different things, you know, like our brains are, you know, like it's like being you know, screamed at. And I think people are starting to realize that, Hey, if I just sit in a chair with a book, you know, and just put my phone off to the side somewhere, it is so relaxing. And I, I think people are going to come back to that. Um, but you know, it, it is, you know, reading a book, it's another medium where we're competing with everybody's time for that. Um, and, you know, even in my own life, I mean, I, I tend to read right before I, I go to bed, like when I'm falling asleep, that's maybe 20 minutes. 
Um, you know, I, I read first thing in the morning for about 15 or 20 minutes or so. And, and that's about it. And I, I would love to read more, but you know, the rest of the day is just, you know, being yanked in 50 different directions. And I know I'm not alone in that. That's everybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Hopefully you're right. You know, hopefully we're coming back around and, uh, you know, people will start to want to, uh, pull, pull out of those, uh, more digital distractions and get back to reading real books. So that could be good for all of us. I hope so. Yeah. Any, anything else, uh, before we wrap up today that caught your ear from, from Chris Brogan? Uh, I would, I would definitely pick up his book. I mean, he's, he, he was a, a really good speaker. I mean, he, like he made me want to be a, become a better speaker. Like just, just, you know, him in a, in a conversation on this podcast. I mean, somebody pulled me aside, you know, this is very new to me. I, I've been on a lot of podcasts, but I've never actually been you know, like a co-host or a host or anything like that. My old writing group in Pittsburgh actually turned our podcast into a drinking game. Like every time <laughs> I say, um, they're, they're taking a drink and <laughs> you know, as fun as that might be, I'm, I'm guessing by the time the interview rolls around, they're probably already gone. Um, and, and he make, you know, he made it seem so effortless and, you know, and that comes from practice. And as authors, I think we all need to do that. You know, one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast is because I want to get better at it. Um, there I go. <laughs> I just said, I'm um, again. Um, it, it, but he, he, you know, because he's doing so much public speaking, you know, he fine tuned it as a craft. He's, he's gotten better at it and we can all do that. Yeah. You know, just, it takes the practice and it's just like anything else. You may not enjoy doing it, but you know, in, in this world, it's part of the job. Uh, just got to practice and, and get better at it. And then the more you do it, the better you will become. Yeah. So true. I mean, whether it's speaking on a stage or behind a microphone, that's, that's an important component, whether you're uh, pursuing the traditional path, whether you're looking to self-publish more than likely at some point, you're going to have to speak in front of a group of people. And I think that's always been true, but uh, <laughs> it, it feels like it's even, it's even more important now. Well, the tricky thing with that, and I'm getting better at it, but you know, every time you, you speak in front of that group, you have to make it sound like it's the first time you're, you're telling these stories. And that, that's a tricky thing to do. Um, because just like Henry, Henry Rollins, you know, hitting the play button and rattling <laughs> off all the stories, you know, when you, you do a book tour and you're, you know, in, in Wichita and the next day you're here, the next day you're there, those people are seeing you for the first time, even though you're telling that story for the 500th time and you have to make it seem fresh. Uh, and that's, that's tricky. Um, and timing those things is, is difficult as well. You know, trying to get to the point where, okay, I've got 45 minutes to fill. I, I'd like to talk about this, this, and this, and then open it up for questions. And, you know, you look up at the clock and, and you're 10 minutes in and, and you're done with everything you wanted to talk about and you, and, and you know, you're fishing for information and just because you, you don't have the timing down. I, perp I, I, I go out and I, I practice a lot of this stuff now, you know, just to see how long this particular story takes, you know, to figure out those, those times because you're, you know, some people will tell you they want you for 40 minutes. Other people want you for an hour and a half. You know, sometimes there's a Q and a, sometimes there's not, you have to be ready for all that as an author and, and you do become better at it the more you do it. Yeah. I totally agree. So it's, it's good for all of us to practice, whether it's on a podcast or in some other way. So speaking of being on podcasts, uh, it's a nice transition into the little teaser we're going to set up for next week. Uh, our guest is going to be Joanna Penn. And Joanna is a great friend of mine, uh, co-writer. We've done the Authors on a Train uh, together. And, uh, and she's had the Creative Pen podcast now for 10 years. That's crazy. And it's one of the podcasts that I listened to before I started publishing on my own. Uh, and she's just, she's a wealth of information. She, she knows a lot of different people and she's very good at, you know, again, of just, you know, getting that information out there, just, just like Chris was. And she's just one of those people who's been doing it for a while now. And, and, and she's got a, a great podcast. Absolutely. So we're really looking forward to having her on the show and, uh, and that'll be up for next, uh, next week. So I guess until then, uh, have a productive week of writing and I'll, and I'll see you then. You too. Take care. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.